We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. When life deals you a tough hand, it's easy to feel that you're in a battle zone and to either hunker down or fight back. But today we're going to approach it in an entirely different manner. I have three questions for you. What can I learn from this moment? What is asking to be loved? What can I offer in return? My witness today is Ayala Gill, who has spent 25 years leading guided silent retreats, teaching yoga, meditation and ceremony. She calls meeting adversity with these three questions living in sacredness. Well, welcome, Ayala. Before we go into these questions and what you mean by living in sacredness, I'd like to get to know you and your journey a bit. In your London State Primary School in the 1970s, something revolutionary was happening. Yoga lessons. So tell me about that first lesson at six years old and why you felt so profoundly at home. Hi, Andrew. Yes, it was at that time very revolutionary because now it's very much an everyday thing to have yoga offered everywhere and even in schools. At that time, it was non-existent pretty much. It was certainly non-existent in other schools and very rare even for adults. So I happened to be at, as you said, my local primary school where one of BKS Iyengar's few UK teachers, a wonderful woman called Audrey Patterson, she'd been studying with him for some time and she decided that she wanted to teach children. So she started a small class in my school and I went along. It's interesting because she was also very gifted in teaching children, which meant that she made it very fun and playful. And we did actually, probably for adults, very advanced postures, like balancings and upside downs. And But what she managed to maintain was a thread of being present, of being in the body and being present with the mind without putting that into words. So it was something that I can only look back on and realize that I experienced from this young age that it's possible to be inside this moment. It's possible to experience this moment in, a, in an embodied way. It's possible also to choose where to place my attention, which is something that began to come to me gradually in the lessons. So it was really the beginning of a meditation practice, but in a very, very playful way. And so what do you think about the six-year-old Ayala that actually needed this? Why do you think that, you know, it was like watering a plant for you? Well, I, again, I didn't know it at the time, but certain conditions of my childhood weren't so easy. Like many people, particularly with one parent, there was... There wasn't really the sense of being seen and some some early trauma, some early abuse. And I all thought that was just, you know, I didn't think actually, it was just what, what was. But at some level, there was a deeper sense of belonging and just being at home that I think I also felt, again, unconsciously in, in nature. We would go every holiday to a place in Dorset where my grandparents live. And I do remember a similar feeling just sitting in the field on my own and a sense of just belonging, being held. 
So you didn't feel sometimes that you belonged or were held in your family, but somehow in the yoga lessons and in nature, you did find that refuge almost. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, that sense of refuge. And again, all of this completely unconscious at the time. There's no yeah. language for it. These are not words that six-year-olds are aware of, but I mean, I think what is so profoundly fascinating is that somehow when we're young, we get pulled towards things that we don't really understand how, but then, you know, we sit back here with 40, 50 years benefit and we realise that this was the beginning of something really profound. Yes, I know. It is really extraordinary the way life seems to dance with us if we listen. So. Where did you go with your yoga from doing it at school? Well, I, I practiced at school from six till about 10 when I changed schools. And meanwhile, my mother had started adult lessons with the same teacher, which meant that there was a thread of connection to that community who were just developing what has now grown into the Iyengar Yoga Institute in Maidabale in London that time it was a kind of back garden shed. But that was also near my house. And because my mother was practicing as well, I continued to drop into your classes through my teens. And then when I went to university, it was something that I also found an IME Yoga Institute thing. I went to university in Edinburgh. And it was something I would sneak off to. It was at that time, again, with students with with young people that was unheard of and certainly not cool. And I would just go to my class, not really telling anyone what I was doing. So it continued to be a presence in my life. After university, I was again pulled in a, in a somewhat mysterious way, which is a longer story, to India. To um, And I ended up working with the Tibetan community in exile there for a year working on a project with young people and the Tibetan architectural heritage. But it meant that I was living surrounded by the uh, Tibetan monks, the Lamas, the Rinpoches, next to the monastery, and just infused with a different form of sacredness, which, again, I didn't choose to study in a conceptual way, but sat with and laughed with and was present with. And by the end of that year, I kept hearing of a meditation treat that other travellers who were coming and going had attended in Bodhagaya, which is where the Buddha is said to have become enlightened in India. Under a tree? Under the Bodhi tree, which is, or the relative of that same Bodhi tree is still there. It's an incredible, huge trunk that could probably fit 30 people around it and a very powerful presence, that tree, obviously because it's revered as well as, as the tree under which the Buddha committed to remain present until he came to understand the deepest questions that he was asking in, in a similar way that, you know, we were all trying to explore the meaning of life. So I decided to attend that retreat and that was my first Vipassana retreat, which is the silent meditation retreat. And I've never done anything like that before, but there's a gift of youthfulness, which is just the willingness to pitch up and see what happens. <laughs> so I'm very, very, so very true. Yes, I'm very grateful that this, you know, that this came to me when I was 23 and had that. Also, another gift of youth that is not to have the need to already be good at it. So there was that, you know, willingness to show up and not expect to know. You know, I was close enough to the whole process of having other people know better than me and not do well and learn. So I turned up and found it incredibly uncomfortable. Even though I had been practicing yoga, my hips were always very, very stiff, interestingly, from a young child. So sitting cross-legged on the floor was very, very challenging for me still in my early 20s. And I found it very, very difficult to bring my attention to my breath and to stay there for, uh, I think it was 40, 45 or 50 minutes, six, and then we would have walking meditations or sitting again and walking and sitting and all in silence. But I knew that there was something very profound happening. So I stayed with it, although I was kind of, you know, waiting for the 10 days to finish. But then something happened, maybe day six, that my body relaxed and my mind began to arrive and 
this incredible gift of being present started to emerge. And we had the option on day eight to sign up for the next 10 days, which fortunately I suddenly felt infused by the very thing that I was trying to run from a few days earlier. And I decided to stay. So again, that feels such a huge gift and something I'm so deeply grateful for that my first ever meditation retreat was a 20 day silent retreat. Because I hear so often from people these days, you know, maybe thinking of coming on one of my retreats or attending another silent retreat and saying, well, maybe I just try a weekend first. And my experience and the experience I've heard of others again and again is that actually those are the hardest days, the hardest time experienced by this, the first few days when we're overcoming our own disconnect and before we start to arrive. So to stay longer, it actually is when we start to get the fruits of the practice. So for me, by the end of these 20 days, something utterly profound had arisen and, and some really profound insights into really the nature of reality had, had landed in me that have continued to be my guiding star ever since. That just something very fundamental about the truth of reality, that it's, it's not so much the story of my mind. There's something very spacious and easeful and beautiful in the spaces in between thoughts and spaces in between surrounding my drama, my story of me, my trauma. Yes, it was something then when I returned back to the UK that, that I committed to continuing alongside the yoga and it slowly became something that I began to train. Now, I'm thinking we're probably sometime in the late 80s, 90s by now. Am I, am I getting the chronology about right? Yes, that's right. So at this point, early 90s. So these are pretty materialistic kind of times. You know, yes. we've got the big bang, everybody's uh, house prices are going through the roof, everybody's making lots of money. And was it sort of difficult to sort of come out as somebody who was into meditation, yoga, sacredness? I think I would have been a bit sort of embarrassed, but that perhaps that's me. I haven't actually sat silent for 20 days. It was difficult, actually. And more than difficult, yes. I was going to say more than difficult. It was a bit lonely, but actually it was both because I realized I, I hid it to some degree and I found a way. I remember actually coming back. I went back to Edinburgh, even though I'm from London because I managed to maintain the relationship with my boyfriend while I was away for the year, who was doing a PhD in Edinburgh. Unfortunately, he's now my husband and we have three children, so that was well worth sustaining. But I went back to Edinburgh to my old group of friends and I remember having spent a year with the Tibetan community, the, the way Tibetans greet each other is with their hands together in a prayer position, the namaste position. So that became very natural for me. And I remember one of the first times I met my whole group of friends, which were my student friends, but also, you know, precious to me. They were, had become my new family. We met in the pub and they came in and I greeted them with my hands in prep position and there was this <laughs> shock. Like kind of one friend in particular reeled back and I found myself kind of oh, laughing and apologising and almost remembering how I meant to behave. And with the meditation, you know, with the yoga, I continued to go back to, I was the only one in my 20s, but there were at least some other older woman practicing. Uh, so I continued to go back to the yoga institute with the meditation. I tried to find some kind of community and I, I must have somehow done some research and found that there was a little group who met up and meditated together. So I went along, but just found no resonance there at all because I was in my twenties and these were people my age now, you know, in their fifties, late forties, you know, very sweet, but also weren't on fire with the same newness of something I had discovered. So yes, I know that there were small groups of young people who were discovering this. And in India, it was mostly young people, which was why this retreat was, the retreat in Bodhagaya was so special because it was somehow harnessing the younger people who were wanting to travel in India and, and were looking for something anyway. And I do sometimes wonder if I had made more of an effort to meet those communities, to connect with them, would the path been a bit easier at that time, but it was what it was. So yes, it, it certainly wasn't, on one level, it wasn't as 
easy as it is these days. But another level, it was easier to keep more authenticity and integrity because I think there's something more challenging, ironically, about yoga and meditation being Instagrammable now. It can become a thing, a concept, an idea that we can just adopt as another identity. But there was nothing around that. I mean, you know, there was the struggle in the other direction of having to be the only one to maintain my practice. But at least there wasn't a culture that the ego could just say, this is a new identity for me. I'm really interested in your three questions because I've sort of been living three questions that came to me from uh, James Hollis, who's a Jungian analyst. If people are interested, they can listen to a past episode. And the good news is he's coming back for another episode. But those three questions, these are questions I've been trying to live for the last 15 years. Tell me what you think of them. The first one is, what makes my life meaningful? You can see I've turned that one into a podcast. What are my values as opposed to the values of my parents, society, and who am I? So those are the three questions I've been living. And I'm sort of rather drawn to your three questions. So perhaps you can sort of take me through them. What can I learn from this moment? Why is that an important question to ask ourselves? So maybe I'll just take a step back before answering that question, which is the sense I have in which I feel is infused by well, three practices that inform me now, because the third one, which is more recent, maybe in the last six, seven years, is animism, uh, which I've discovered from the Andean Incan tradition in Peru. And something that infuses the yoga, the meditation, and the animistic consciousness is this sense of being in relationship, being in relationship with everything, in all directions, all the time. What do you mean by all directions? What I mean is to be willing to include our relationship to what's happening inside us, so the inner experience, what's happening around us, all of the additional narratives and history and future projections that we bring in, which I suppose is a mixture between the relationship to what's happening in us and the relationship to what's happening outside of us. And then, which is more from the animistic worldview or cosmology, is a relationship to an unseen realm or an aliveness inherent in everything. So not just the obvious relationship, like the one between you and I right now, but the whispers of being in relationship with the natural world, with a spirit world, if that's something that begins to emerge for us, with the whole universe as something that is infused with the same luminous intelligence, is infused with consciousness as well. The living world is alive, I think is sort of how I'm understanding what you're saying. Whereas we tend to think of a tree more as an object rather than a living being. Exactly. And actually, it's helpful to remember perhaps that this is a very, very, very recent perspective in human evolution. You know, it's it's point one of our time as human beings have we created this division between self and other and this somewhat strange idea of existing in a cold, dead universe where everything is an object to be consumed and we're the only one living with any type of consciousness or any type of intelligence. And perhaps our dog and our cat and that's it. Right. And a thing, again, interestingly, that we come into genuine relationship with. So this is the heart of the reason why I practice the practices I do, is that the discovery that when we really do come into a genuine relationship with this moment, whether it's the ache in my body or with my breath or with each other or with the tree, it becomes alive to us. It becomes more than subject-object. There is a reciprocal unfolding which happens. There's the mystery of the third, if you like, you know, but rather than it just being one meeting two, there's something that happens in the space when we really meet with an open heart, mind, this moment, whatever is rising in this moment. So I'm thinking there is a depth to the question, what can I learn from this moment beyond, you know, I could learn about animism, sort of. It's a deeper sense of learning. Am I getting that right? Exactly. And it's also points to the possibility of life itself being 
both a classroom and a playground. And I like to think of both. So a classroom in terms of when we meet life with that question, what can I learn from this moment? Rather than being a victim to life's random and often cruel turning of the wheel, that there is, we come back into being in relationship and it points towards something that's quite at the foundation of the Buddhist teachings as well, that our experience of suffering is one that arises when there is separation, when we're in resistance or grasping onto or trying to push away whatever is actually here in this moment. So suffering is different from the inherent pain that comes up in life. Therefore, if we go back to the question, what can I learn from this moment? When we recognize that whatever is here, whether it's painful or pleasant, whether it's full of ease or discomfort, the great teaching when we really come to meet it intimately is that this friction, this additional pain, struggle of suffering can dissolve. And there is always a way when we meet something directly of coming back into a spaciousness, an ease, a freedom, of coming back, if it's not too corny a word to use, into a place of love. It's possible to love even things we don't like. So there is always the invitation, in other words, when we're suffering, when we're caught in some kind of war with this moment, some kind of friction or disconnect or need or grasping, that in itself is already teaching us that there is something to let go of, there is something to release, there is something to come into a new relationship with. And we, I think, spend 99% of our lives in friction with the moment. Even the things we've been looking forward to, suddenly when we're in them, we're thinking about the next step along the way. We're very seldom actually there in that moment. And that's the great irony. It's not even the things that we dislike, that we struggle with. It's, as you said, as soon as something comes that we love, we're afraid we're going to lose it. We're afraid it's going to end. And these all point, these are all very fundamental truths at the heart of the teaching of Dharma, the Buddha's teaching. So the second question is, what is asking to be loved? Which is really an extension from the first question, because we could say when really, really come close to this moment when we really sit inside the first question, what is this moment? What can I learn from this moment? It is only ever that. It is only ever the second invitation, which is what is asking to be loved right now? Because when we're not in that alignment of meeting this moment with love, it means that we're meeting it with the friction of either trying to hold on to it because we're afraid it's going to leave us or trying to put it away because we're afraid it will overwhelm us. Now, as a therapist, I'm thinking very much of this question about what is asking to be loved inside me or inside my client. Because often when we're in distress, I think there probably is a part of us that needs to be loved. What do you think? Absolutely, yes. And I agree with you that really always has to be the first place we turn to, to bypass that and pretend to love somebody else, for example, that we're struggling with is just going to be another form of platitude or spiritual bypass. But again, if we come close to the first question, in this moment, what I'm experiencing in this moment, I always experience inside my body. It's always my own experience. Even if I'm experiencing you, the way I'm experiencing you is first and foremost in my experience. Yeah, through yourself. There's no other way, is there? There is no other way, exactly. So at the same time, the reactions I have to you or to this moment are also happening inside myself. So coming to the second question, what's here to be loved can only be first and foremost here in this mix of experience that is arising inside myself. Because, and I'm just going to use a weird example, you know, I'm an older man, I have a beard, and it's perfectly possible that you've met older men who have sort of put you down or have given you a hard time. And in a sense, you have to love that part of you that was... And I'm, this is a rather big word for it, traumatised by that older man, to be able to experience this moment right now. 
Is, is that making any sense? Absolutely. You know, what you pointed to is the complexity of what it is to be human because, you know, we most often, and, and this is why your work is so important, we most often bypass all those very subtle layers within us and go straight into the projection of I don't like you without even knowing that actually what's happening is often unconscious trauma from somebody that felt or seemed or appeared like you and I'm responding in that unconscious way. So to make space to pause when we find ourselves in that state of reactivity is always for me the most important first step. To Well, perhaps the first step is to recognize that I'm suffering or to recognize that there is some kind of reactivity going on, to know what that feels like in the body so that I know to pause. And then the next step after those first two would be to come into the body, to come into my body, to know that this is actually where whatever I'm looking for, whatever healing or ease or whatever information is going to be found. And then from there to reach out to find enough support, whether that's with other professionals like yourself or friends and mentors, but a true support or the support of our practices if, if somebody has a practice. So a true support that allows us to relax enough out of our habitual and reactive mechanisms so that ultimately we can start to actually feel what's here and meet what we're feeling with love. And then the third question, which is a, a surprise to me, so that makes it doubly interesting to me, what can I offer in return? So yes, that's pointing just to the for this miracle that I'll call love. I could also call it sacredness. And there are probably many other words. I'm thinking of compassion, actually, at this precise moment. So I'll explain that a little. I'll, maybe I'll refer to the Buddha for this as well, because the Buddha described the different flavours of love very beautifully. From a standpoint of understanding that love is the way presence, truth, sacredness moves. It's just the, the natural way this luminous consciousness that seems to pervade everything moves when it's liberated to move, let's say. And the, the different flavours of love that the Buddha described, the first one is usually translated as loving kindness. And it's just the natural warmth that love is expressed. So that might be one way. And when I say, what can I give back? That's again within the context of those other questions, having landed in this moment, having felt supported, having found the capacity to actually feel what's here with love, there's a natural arising of either this warmth of loving kindness or, as you said, compassion, which is the way love naturally moves when it meets suffering, which is the most likely way it might arise in the context we're describing when we're meeting some kind of struggle, some, some suffering. So this, this natural movement of suffering. But there's also times, as you said, when we struggle even being with joyful experiences. So another way that love moves is, is just delight. It's the natural sparkle of pure delight. And another way is in a kind of spaciousness, usually translated as an equanimity, but this, this spacious holding that includes all of these different movements. So when that comes to giving back, it's realizing that the more we come home to ourselves, come into true relationship with whatever is arising this moment, the more it liberates us to respond appropriately to whatever's here around us, to whoever is here in front of us. And by responding appropriately, what I really mean is being liberated to respond with and from love and also to respond creatively. So I mentioned earlier that, that I find it very helpful to relate to life as a classroom for growing into my capacity to be present with love. But that also means it's a playground. It also means it's, you know, we are all increasingly liberated to creatively express sacredness, creatively express love, whatever word we were going to give it, so that there's this ongoing giving back which arises much more naturally, much less out of, as I alluded to earlier, much less out of this sense of needing to be somebody, needing to be successful or be loved so that I can be satisfied that I'm finally safe or belong. 
or in a sort of transactional way, you know, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. And, you know, we have a deal. Exactly, exactly. And I think the world of separation, or rather the world's view of separation that we've all grown up with, where everything is separate from us and somewhat cold and dead, <laughs> implies that everything is there to be consumed and everything becomes transactional. Whereas as soon as we begin to expand into this different possibility where everything is already in relationship, which is actually what quantum physics has confirmed for us, that everything is already codependently arising, influencing and being influenced by everything else, and everything is infused with a luminous intelligence, then what begins to emerge is, is more of a dance. The transaction isn't needed because this is just love's response, and that has its own deep fulfillment. It has its own joy. So how do we take all of these questions? What can I learn from this moment? What is asking to be loved and what can I offer in return? Translate that into how it might look on a sort of day-to-day basis that um, I would understand. Because at the moment, I can see this working very nicely in a retreat where, you know, all I have to do is sit there and, you know, eat a bowl of rice from time to time. (laughs) But I'm having trouble seeing how this would translate into my everyday life. So help me out. So to relate to my three practices, the things that work for me, there are simple things for each one of those. So one, the yoga, it doesn't have to be yoga. It's about coming into the body. It's about feeling our body, moving our body. It can be going for a run. It can be dancing. It can just be a bit of stretching. Meditation, similarly, it does really help with all of these things to have guidance, to have a practice. But fundamentally, it's also about just discovering and exploring that it's possible to choose where to place our attention, meaning it's possible to unhook from those obsessive thoughts and choose just to feel the sensation of breathing, which we can do, again, as we wake up. It can be a pause and a few moments of feeling three breaths fully, but really feeling them, feeling the sensations, not just thinking, breathing, breathing, breathing. And then... Yes, as part of the rekindling of animism, just any authentic connection with nature is enormously helpful. So this simple practice of going out barefoot in the morning, but being open to, again, feeling the grass underfoot, whether it's frost under my feet or the warm softness, feeling and smelling the air. So it's incredibly helpful to begin a practice of opening to our senses and opening to receptivity in general, beginning to listen, because everything else I've been talking about stems from that. It stems from being in the body and being receptive and being willing to listen from a soft place, including noticing and being willing to recognize when we don't do that, when we become contracted and hard and go into the mind and go into attack or defense. How lovely just to listen to the bird song and the the wind through the trees. So incredibly soothing for the whole nervous system as well. And I'm just thinking actually, you know, how to really taste the fruit rather than just bung it down your throat. Oh, I mean, that's a whole other practice of its own. And it was probably one of the very powerful discoveries of my first meditation retreat was how incredible food tasted when we actually tasted it. And I love food. So that really is a joy for me. And and I, although I completely understand why and that it's such a joy to have mealtimes as our most sociable time, there's something so precious and beautiful about choosing to eat and have no other distraction and not speak and be utterly present with the whole process of it and smelling the food first and being aware of, you know, what happens in my mouth as I bring it to my lips. And so that could just be a practice with, as you said, one bite of an apple, just to be truly present as if you'd never tasted an apple before, you know, that, that explosion of completely new sensation in the mouth. So, so life starts to come alive with these practices. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
if you'd like to go deeper into The Meaningful Life, you can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. You get the bonus material and you get the opportunity to write into us. In fact, anybody can write into us. And if you'd like to do that, you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You'll find a space in that page, which is called Participate. And you can send a letter in. You can sign up for our newsletter. And as I say, it'll explain how to become a supporter. So here is the letter we've got to discuss this week. I feel angry and let down by life. I've discovered that it's highly unlikely I will ever be able to be a mother. I was not one of those girls who were desperate to have babies, but I always assumed that when I wanted to fall pregnant, everything would be fine. I suppose I took it all for granted. Now I'm in my mid to late thirties and I found a man with whom I want to raise a family and I've had this terrible shock. I don't know how to fight my way out of this profound unhappiness. I'm like a deer in headlights. I don't know which way to turn. To add to the cruelty, my younger sister and her husband have announced they are pregnant. Obviously, I'm pleased for her. I don't want to take the shine off her moment, but I want to shout, it's not fair. So, what can we learn from this moment? So, first of all, I would just like to say to you, Mr. how deeply I feel the experience she's in right now and, and the courage for her to having both recognised it as lucidly as she has, the complexity of the different emotions that are here, and the, and the courage to share it and reach out for help. So my first response would be, you know, really she has already described so well both what's going on and the challenges of it. So the fact that there's anger, there's clearly grief, there's Shock. Jealousy. And then there's jealousy. And then there's the kind of confusion and hatred around self-hatred for feeling that jealousy and confusion and conflict, very mixed emotions towards the sister, towards herself. There's so many competing emotions in this moment, which, as she said, leaves her feeling like a deer in the headlights. And then the languaging naturally comes, I don't know how to fight my way out of this profound unhappiness. So it's as I described earlier, when we find ourselves in a state of overwhelm, we go into a state of fight, flight, freeze. We go into this state of shock, like a deer in the headlights. And we believe that the only way is to fight or to run or just to freeze. And we kind of possibly can't do any of those. So the first thing is the invitation that I would give would be, as I described earlier, to literally in this moment, even as she's listening, to take a deep breath, to take a sigh out through her mouth, to ah. and maybe take a few of those. So to allow for this pause, allow for a space of the clamour of her mind, because we tend to assume that we need to figure this out with the mind. And it's unfigurable. This isn't something from this place of fight, flight, freeze. The mind can't actually give us any solutions. It can seem to, but we stay caught in a place of deep suffering. So to just invite this possibility of a pause, to breathe, to come into the body. And that's not, I, I recognize that that's not an obvious phrase for, I mean, a lot of people might not even know what that means, but so to put it more simply, to be willing to just feel her body, to feel the ground, to feel the belly, the chest, to feel whatever sensations are available. She'll start to feel the places that are very contracted, which probably are the places where all these different emotions are being held. So it can be helpful to realize or to remember, for those who have already felt this before, that all emotions are actually also expressed as physical sensations in the body. So like gritted teeth, for example, I can, exactly. that, that is, that's the feeling that uh, when you said, where is it in the body, that's where my mind went to. That would probably be the first layer. And then there would also be, a, I, I would imagine, a lot of tension in the diaphragm. There'd be a gripping in the belly. There'd be a lot of either kind of losing herself in tears, which would often happen. We kind of feel like we're going to drown in grief because we recreate the story of this 
terrible situation I'm in and this is what's happened to my sister. We replay that story and so we recreate the grief or that feels overwhelming and so we switch into suppressing it and we keep busy or we turn to anger, which is, you know, this it's not fair, why is the world? So we create another story which perpetuates the anger. So the practice really when we come into the body is to actually have the courage, although it might be faith in the beginning, to let go of the stories to really trust that it's not that we're denying any of those realities, they are all realities, but that that's right now in this moment not where our salvation lies, not where our healing or where appropriate response can come from, but to instead allow the stories to be here enough for the emotions to come here. And as I said before, it takes support. So it would be, I would imagine, a really good idea for her to to reach out to somebody like you, to be held enough that she can start to feel these emotions, to just host them, to give space for them to be felt so that they can start to flow like the energy and motion that they actually are. They can not become so stagnated, neither replaying themselves nor being squashed and pushed away into a corner. And then we're more able to come back into this space of spaciousness with what's arising. And the way I put it earlier was loving what's here. And obviously, you know, it's it's a bit of a reframing of the word love when we say loving the grief, loving the anger. It really isn't the same as liking it. It's just tenderly holding space for the truth of this in my experience right now. That's what loving means. It's more like as one would with a, with a beloved friend or a mother to their child. Holding the feeling to get the truth from it. I wouldn't be as conditional as that, actually. Just holding the feeling because the feeling is here. Right. Because what is most important is rather than losing ourselves inside identification with whatever is here in this moment, to bring ourselves back into a space where we are the love that knows this, where we are the spaciousness that knows this, where we're the, I'm trying to choose words that don't sound so corny, the sacredness that knows this, but it's only something that can come through felt experience, otherwise it does sound corny. But there is a way that we can come back into relationship with this moment, even very, very, very painful moments that mean we no longer need to suppress them and that allow us when we stay in connection with the ground, with our body, with the support of our practices or the personal people we're, we're drawing on to help us remain present, that mean we also don't lose ourselves and start inside the narratives of victimhood either. And there's a, a, a freedom which begins to come that actually allows us, and this is the very important thing for your listener, that actually allows us to respond in a way that is creative. So what happens when we are stuck, like the deer in headlights, is that we are unable to be creative. We're unable to draw from the wide depth and breadth of possibility that is still available in any moment, whether that's more creativity around the question of fertility, whether that's more creativity around the question of motherhood, whether that's more creativity around the urge to birth something in this world, which can look many different ways. But it's impossible to have any of that creativity when we're just caught in the narrative and suppressing or drowning in the emotions. Because one of the questions of grief is not just what I've got to learn from this, but what needs to be reborn. And that creativity is where we're going to find what needs to be reborn from this moment. Exactly. And actually, I would say it reveals itself to us. What is reborn emerges from when we allow that river of grief to flow and we really allow ourselves to be inside that river, to know that even grief is sacred, that we can be in relationship to this moment, even when this moment is full of grief. So it's grieving the loss of the idea that things would happen a certain way to allow what is here, not in a passive way, because it's not just then surrendering to doing childlessness or childlessness, exactly. It's allowing something to be learned. Maybe there's going to be a whole new avenue of experience and even, you know, experience on every level, experience in relationship with 
the family as it continues to grow in relationship to work, to whatever from, whatever creative expression starts to come forward, then that's not quite clear. So I'll, I'll give an example of my own life. So for me, I've got three children. The first pregnancy came unexpectedly and easily, therefore. And when my son was two, we had been traveling for six months. It was the time that I was practicing a very intense form of yoga, which is called Ashtanga. But I decided that we decided, my husband and I decided that it would be time to, we wanted another child. And um, what ended up happening was a year, perhaps two years of miscarriages. I had three miscarriages and it was oh. a time of Profound loss. Profound loss and very similar sentiments to your listener in terms of just that shock that this isn't meant to happen. The profound loss, miscarriage and issues with fertility are very hushed over in our culture. So it's very shameful experience somehow, interestingly, and it's something that I'm still, I still reflect on wondering whether it is the healthiest way for us as women as well to not speak about these things. But that's, you know, that's another question. So it was a journey of initially being in denial and wanting to carry on as I did before, but then through time leading me to inquire about my yoga practice, to inquire about my where I was coming from with motherhood and to eventually soften into a very different space of ultimately of surrender of a deeper level of receptivity. And obviously I can never know the part that journey played in one day, you know, my daughter coming along, but it certainly informed my parenting. It informed my the way I practice, the way I taught, my engagement with, with women. I began to work as a doula myself and began to be very much more involved in, in the whole process. So that's one example. And I could give other examples from parenting itself that the most challenging things that have happened to me have generally been around parenting and, and motherhood because <laughs> they, you know, they're so profound and precious and they matter so much have also been my greatest teachers and it's tended to be, so I will briefly say, just briefly, the other great teacher was when my son, my other son, turned 13, he one day couldn't get out of bed and it ended up being what turned out to be eight years of chronic fatigue syndrome, which wow. only at the end of that whole time was a journey of, again, another even more, for me, profound layer of shock, resistance, denial, or not denial, but wanting to fix without actually opening to receive the multitude of emotions and layers that were here, but eventually took on a journey to such, such profound learning for me. And I hope for him, in fact, yes, he says now that it has ended up being a huge hit for him. Eventually, he found out that there was a physiological reason for it, but it was eight years later and it was easily resolved. But along the way, there was also an enormous amount of unlearning of my own assumptions of being a good girl and my parenting of him to be a certain way. And so I'm just sharing all of this because... Right now, of course, I would love to be able to take away the pain for myself, for him, for all of us, for those times. But if somebody told me that if we were to take away the pain, we would also take away the depth of learning and growth and the way that things have ultimately transformed for the better for all of us, if we had to lose both, for myself, I it's much more difficult when I speak about for him, but actually for all of us, because I see the gifts that's brought him. And certainly with the experience of miscarriages, I wouldn't now. Well, you've obviously reached a higher level of acceptance than me, because I'm thinking at this precise moment of the terrible moments in my life. And, you know, I accept them and I've learned from them, but I can't engage with that question, would I go back and do it all again? <laughs> it's just too much. I'm going to stay with your three questions. What can I learn from this moment? 
what is asking to be loved? I really like that question, what's asking to be loved and what can I give in return? I think that sort of puts us in balance. It feels like a, it feels like an anchor when you're dealing with difficult things. And the giving in return, I wouldn't focus on, like, you know, for your listener now, it's really that one, the middle one of what's here to be loved and trusting yeah. that all the rest emerges from that willingness to meet what is here to be, to be embraced, not liked, definitely not liked, but just to be met with love. So I have to say thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life and ask you what makes your life meaningful? Well, in the very similar way we've been talking, what makes my life most meaningful is relationship, connection, being in reciprocal relationship. And as I said earlier, with whatever is arising, And so there's an extraordinary fullness that was the revelation that came, I suppose, began to come in my early yoga practice and that came more with more clarity in my first meditation retreat that even this utterly mundane and boring breath becomes profoundly meaningful when I meet it intimately and lovingly and spaciously. Because what is most meaningful is the intimacy, the love and the spaciousness. And so it's that alignment with, uh, I suppose, what is already here, the intimacy, the love, the spaciousness of being, the freedom of being, that feels most meaningful to me. And then within that, personally, the relationship with humans, <laughs> that's like the, the, the relationship with other people, the depth of connection that's possible is just, you know, the thing I will find hardest to let go of when all of this ends. This is where the conversation ends for most people, but uh, we're going to go even deeper in a moment on the uh, bonus material. What we're going to be talking about is how to turn anger into compassion. Wow, we are going to be going deep, and I do hope you can join us for that conversation. If you'd like to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.